Hello and welcome to the Cubits podcast. My name is Tom Broughton, founder of Cubits. And in this series, I'm talking to people I like to call emotional utilitarians, people who live lives split between the pragmatic and the romantic. My guest this week is Tim Little. Tim left a decade long career in advertising to pursue his love of shoes and soon found himself heading up Grenson, shoemakers since 1866. Tim reestablished the company into the brand we know and love today innovating and adapting without compromising on their heritage. In Grenson's own words, an old company with a young heart. We'll talk about the specific quirks of shoe design, including my own short-lived affair with bootmaking, and discuss three functional objects from Tim's life he couldn't live without. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Thank you for having me. Could you start by telling us the history of Grenson? Oh, wow. 1866, as you just said, old English shoe company started by a guy called William Green, then became, at the turn of the century, there was, uh, most companies were called William Green and Son or and Daughters or whatever. And then there became um, a trend for companies to be shortened. So Green and Son, or William Green and Son became Grenson. Mm -hmm. They shortened it. I've got the board meeting somewhere, the minute somewhere, which is um, where they decided to do it. Then it, it went through the, it was the early days of the Industrial Revolution. They set up their first factory and then they moved to a really big factory as the company grew. As with many kind of shoemakers and, and uh, manufacturers at that time of, of all types, um, the war became a massive thing where they doubled or tripled in size almost overnight with all of the uh, orders from the um, British government. And it continued on like that. Depression between the wars where the business almost went under and then again, the Second War, Second World War, the business grew enormously again. And then since then, it was kind of a real classic downturn of product like ours being made overseas to start with Italy and parts of Europe, and then eventually India and China. So the industry went from literally thousands of factories to of the type of factory we are, like mainly a kind of Goodyear welted menswear factory, kind of 10 or 12 left now, so. So you were working in advertising? Yes. And how did that career then lead you to be running Grenson today? Uh, well, the last five years in uh, advertising, I ran Adidas, the Adidas account. Um, and so I was kind of really kind of thrown into shoes in a big way. I was always a big shoe nut anyway. Got the opportunity to run Adidas, absolutely loved it. Also worked on Timberland for a couple of years as well and started to get really involved in product. And, and it was fascinating to see how with a company like Adidas, you start with a marketing brief. You don't start with, let's make a shoe. What, what, what's it look yeah. like? you start with what is the need of the consumer? What are they looking for? What do we need? Do we need a lighter running shoe or do we need a chunkier boot for curling or something like that, whatever it might be. 
So yeah, that I became really obsessed with the whole process of shoes in particular. Obviously, they do a lot of apparel as well, but shoes in particular, I loved it. And then just thought the problem I had with what we were doing was we kind of come in halfway through the process towards the end and say, here's the product, do some ads for it, do some marketing for it. And I wanted to get in at the beginning and be involved, right, even creating the brief for what that product was going to be and be involved with designers and, and the whole thing all the way through to finally seeing it on people's feet in the street. And so the only way to do that was to start my own thing. And then what was Grenson like at the time? What were they, what were they doing? So that, that was before Grenson. So I ran my own, I had my own little business called Tim Little um, and, and did that and was kind of traveling around, you know, selling my shoes and I had a shop at the King's Road. And then I got asked by the then owner of Grenson, who's, he, he was a private equity guy, but his father had owned Grenson for like 30 years and wanted to retire. Uh, by then, it was kind of really, you know, kind of struggling desperately. Yeah. And w with a lot of those companies, it become this kind of a bit of a kind of um, suffocated by its own heritage, which is a common theme, yeah. you know, in businesses like that and didn't know how to get out of that. You know, so the product was similar that they've been making for the last 30 years. Most of the product was designed around the boardroom table. So they'd say, oh, that brogue did quite well last season. Let's do that in another color. You know, that was about the extent of the design process. And also, it, they become some of those businesses that are just manufacturers, always have been. Um, they become quite insular about the product. And it's kind of it's quite an interesting thing, really. I absolutely adore the product, but I have to pull myself away sometimes. The fact that I live in London, I think, is, is a bonus because if I was in the factory every day, I'd be obsessing over the it, how many millimeters on the weld rather than actually thinking about what people want and where the market's going and where the business is going. Um, so yeah, Grenson was really on its knees. It was everything about it was falling apart. The building, you know, kind of average age, I think was 60 of the workforce, which is pretty terrifying. And they'd have things like in the building, the stock room of the shoes was on the top floor. So every day we'd be sending out shoes to retailers and the stock room was on the top floor and the lift was about 80 years old and it broke down kind of twice a week and the engineer had to come around to fix it and he just kept maintaining it all the time. But I would say, oh, we haven't got many shoes out this week. What's the, what's the problem? You know, didn't we get any orders? I said, no, the lift broke, you know, so we couldn't get any out. So it was all that kind of stuff. And it was, instead of fixing it and doing something about it, moving to another factory or whatever, it's let's just keep going and hopefully what something will happen, you know. So yeah, it was pretty dire at the time. Well, I mean, it's because we first met, of course, when I was trying to start a shoe company. Yes. <laughs> Whenever that yes. was. 12 years ago, I can't remember. It was at Mecam. Yeah, it was. We're there for a glasses trade show. And I think that Mecam was in, yeah, in Milan. Yes, it was in Milan, yeah. But then I think yeah. I'm speaking to you at the time about how I was really struggling to find factories that were kind of progressive and open enough for a different way yeah. of kind of designing and making a shoe. Yeah. And I still remember the time I tried to change an order and they said, sorry, you can't change. This is an order that was happening three months ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, sorry, you can't change the order. And I was like, well, why? Because it's three months away. And they said, oh, because we've already printed the tickets. <laughs> 
<laughs> I said, can, can we reprint the tickets? And they said, no, 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 you only print the tickets once. Yeah. I was like, well, what's the option? And they're like, well, you can, you can come up to Northampton, uh, Woolerton actually, mm. and you can find the tickets and you can adjust them all yourself if you want. <laughs> so, yeah. That's customer service yeah, for you. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, they were like, you know, that's what, that's what the industry had become. It's, yeah. uh, for the factories that are left, I think that's changed quite a lot now. Um, but a lot of the ones that went were, went for exactly that reason. Um, and it was, I'd come from advertising where if we invited a client in for a meeting, we would have somebody, we'd be kind of measuring these special pencils that were made, that were made in the logo of the, the color of the logo and, the, and everything was immaculate and these little bottles of water that we sourced from Japan and all this kind of, I mean, I know nonsense really. But I'd go to the factory uh, on a pre-agreed meeting in, um, in, in Northampton somewhere. This is when I was making my shoes. And I'd, I'd phone up and say, can I come and see you? You know, how about 11 o'clock on Tuesday next week? And they said, well, yeah, just come when you like. I said, well, is 11 o'clock okay? Yeah, anytime. <laughs> so they, ne- they didn't even have meetings. They didn't have meetings. They didn't put it. They're always in the factory, never left the factory. So you just turn up and... Um, and it was just a completely different world. It was like 100 years old. But yeah, it's changed a bit now. And yeah, how's the kind of Gregson journey been since then, since you first got involved? It's been like anything. You know, it's been exhausting. It's been exciting. It's been horrendous. It's been, you know, just about everything. It's, it's a, such a multifaceted business now. So it's marketing, the sourcing, because we make some shoes overseas in India. Um, there's selling, wholesale, there's retail. They've never had retail before, so I open up stores and what have you. So there's a lot going on and it's very busy. It's been going great. I mean, you know, we're kind of, I think we're about seven or eight times the size that we were back then. But it's still been a hard ride. And the hardest thing that I'd never even thought about when I first started was what it's like to be in the fashion business. And you can do absolutely everything right and suddenly the fashion moves in a slightly different direction and you can just be left standing there with a business that's really struggling. Um, and we went through a huge thing about five years ago when sneakers became massive and we didn't have a sneaker collection. And it was really scary. You know, it was terrifying. And people all of a sudden, not ju- I mean, sneakers have always been a big thing but for sports, but for wearing out with a pair of jeans or whatever, it's suddenly these smart sneakers that were being worn with a suit and people getting married in a pair of smart leather sneakers. And it was like, instead of a pair of brogues or a, um, a Goodyear welted pair. And that was like, that happened overnight. Um, and it was like, that's really scary. But I suppose one of the benefits of having your own manufacturing is you can pivot much more quickly than a kind of traditional brand might be able to do. Yes, I, I think um, I think more than that, being a small company with a small group of people and being privately owned, yeah. that that was the quickest. So, I we I was standing on um, a trade show stand in Pitti in Florence, Pitti Womo, which is the kind of big luxury menswear show, and this buyer came on, one of the big buyers from the UK who who bought for Selfridges and Liberty. And just said, over the last two seasons, we've gone from 80% formal shoes, brown shoes as it's called in the trade, and 20% sneakers to the other way around in two seasons. And it was like, oh, 
oh my good, I'm, and he's telling me this on the stand. And I'm suddenly, as soon as he walked off the stand, I called two people who I was working with for a meeting. We went outside, we got a coffee outside. I said, right, get something in the diary. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a plan for how Grents would do a sneaker. Um, if we did a sneaker as a brand, how would we do it? Because we're not known for it. It seems crazy now. It seems normal. But at the time, it was a big deal to go into what was regarded as the rival footwear to what we did. But we could pivot really quickly. Yeah. So the following pity, six months later, we had a really nice collection of sneakers to show. <laughs> and we survived it, you know. But we wouldn't have done if we'd have been slow. Yeah. We didn't have a choice. We had to move quickly and we did. And it was fine. And how would you, I guess, describe the, the Grenson, I guess, approach to design or aesthetic when you're moving across a whole different bunch of different footwear categories? So, first of all, simplicity. It's difficult with a brand like this because you've got the heritage, but you don't want to be old-fashioned. Yeah. You don't want to lose the heritage. You want to be somewhere, you want to have a bit of both. So I try to take what is inherent in English shoemaking and kind of boil it down to various elements. Uh, the first for me is simplicity. So very much functional. You know, if you look at an English, classic English shoe, compared to, um, say, an Italian shoe. An Italian shoe tends to be much more extravagant, more, say, elegant, pointy, fine soles. It'll have fine detailing on it. An English shoe is kind of quite rough and ready. Still, very, I mean, to me, even more beautiful, but very rough and ready, very simple, um, simple lines, beautiful shapes to me. And that's the key thing that com comes through, but always really beautiful materials as well. So I try to, when we sit down with, to do work on sneakers, the first thing is simplicity. The second thing has got to be the same kind of materials that we make with Joe Welton mm -hmm. shoe. So really beautiful, um, often hand burnished leather. So the shoes spend a lot of time in the shoe room being polished over and over again and that kind of thing. So you basically, it's a, it's like a Goodyear welted shoe, but in sneaker form. Um, and it's not a great way of describing it, but there are, there's a lot of things in my head that are difficult to describe about is that you look at something and to me, I'll say that's a Grenson shoe mm -hmm. or that's not. And if I get it wrong, our customers tell us anyway. And they say, oh, what the hell are you doing? That's appalling, you know. And, and what would you say for you makes a shoe a beautiful object? Oh, God, that's a really, really difficult question. It, it's a very personal thing, obviously, but it, it, for me, it's all about the shape and the proportions. Um, so what's so weird about a shoe, and I bet you would say the same about what you do, it's something that's really small. And you would think that because it's so small, there aren't many options, you know, that and yet, and people often say to me, how do you design a shoe? Surely everything's been done. You can't change anything. It's only, you know, that big. Um, but just a tiny millimeter, tiny shape of the last. Mm -hmm. The first thing is the last. So in shoemaking, it's all about the last and getting the shape of that right. And I can see two shoes, one from us, one from somebody else, that's the same basic shoe. It's a full brogue or it's a plain fronted derby or um, it's a whole cut Oxford, whatever. And on our last, I think it looks really beautiful. And on somebody else's, um, I think it looks horrible. 
and yet I'll show it to somebody else and they'll say, well, I can't really tell the difference, you know, but it, it's all of that detail in it and it's all about the shapes and soul, how the soul blends with the upper. Yeah. Sometimes you get a big, bold upper with the soles too thin and I see it on other shoes and the sole is out of proportion with the, with the upper or the other way around, you know, but it's about proportions and shapes and things for me mainly. I remember having a, a moment of realization when I was trying to do this, this shoe thing and I was trying to explain British sizing to somebody in Japan and they just didn't understand it. Mm. So I naively thought, oh, this, this, this will be straightforward. All I'll do, I'll just, I'll just go and measure all of the lasts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll just convert those and I'll just explain yeah. those to a, this potential customer in Japan. And I, went, I remember driving up to yeah, Woolerton and getting, going to the last room, finding our specific last. Yeah, and measuring them all, and this moment of realization where I realized two things: one, that it's much, so much more complicated than just the length and the width. Yeah, I think I thought back to when you're at, when you're buying, you know, you're, you're a kid and you have those little foot yeah. measuring tools, and I realized actually that just, these are three dimensional objects and they're actually really complicated. Yeah, and the last plays such a big role in the actual feeling of the shoe. Yeah, and the second thing, realizing that even within the lasts, there's a huge amount of variance anyway. Yeah, some of them had shrunk, some of them were the same size. Yeah. And I, that, yeah, that moment when I thought, oh God, this is going to be tougher than I thought. Yeah, it's really hard. And because the last is everything. I mean, it, first of all, it, it's the look, it's completely the look. You know, if it doesn't look right, you don't want to wear the shoes. But making something that fits as many people as possible, and people don't understand it, you know, and they'll say to me, oh, I bought a pair of your shoes and they were so uncomfortable. I'm never wearing Grantson again. And I'll say, well, it, it, it We've got, say, about 25 different lasts. You've tried one last. That might be an extra narrow last or a wide last. It might be pointy. It might be wide um, at the joint, but it might go into a point. It might not suit your foot. You might try another last of ours at a different shoe. might be perfect, you know, and we can't get it right for everybody. It's impossible. But that is part of the art of last making and shoe making to make something that fits as many people as possible and still looks beautiful. But it's very much, you have to work with a good last maker because uh, uh, you know a lot of that is in, in the last maker. I can tell him how I want it to look or change it, whatever, but ultimately the fit will be created by him. So I can't do that. You've described yourself and Grenson as an old company with a young heart. And what, what do you mean by that? Um, it's that thing we just talked about a minute ago, which is it's the, the balance between when you're a heritage brand, you've got this thing that's always there, always sitting on your shoulder. Um, if you, my screensaver on my phone, I'll show you now. I don't, in fact, I don't even have it. No, I haven't got it. Put it over there. But my screensaver, every time I put a thing on, is William Green, you know, and it's an old black and white picture of the guy who started the company. And that's the heritage of the company and you feel a responsibility for that, but it mustn't ever um, suffocate us as a business because if you look, when I looked at Grenson originally when I first got there, I looked through what they'd done over the years and they only stopped creating new stuff in like the 80s or 90s. But if you look back to the late 1800s, the early um, 1900s, through the war period, and then even the 60s and 70s, they were constantly changing and keeping up with the fashion of the day. And in the 70s, they were trying to create a kind of, well, they did, they created a kind of um, almost a platform shoe, 
big chunky you know kind of glam glammy glam rock kind of shoes and what have you and it's that so it's the old company with a young heart is you've got to keep an eye and you've got to keep one foot excuse the pun in the past and in your heritage but you've got to move on you can't be a museum brand you know i or i don't think you can i don't want people to buy one shoe that we've been doing for the last 600 years i want them to come and see new things and fresh things but with a signature of what we've been doing for 100 years in it but not slavishly trying to recreate everything we've ever done before and getting that balance right is difficult but it's very powerful when you get it right um when you get it wrong either you end up doing a shoe that looks like you're trying to be too trendy when you're not when you're not that kind of brand or too boring and old-fashioned and people go you know i've moved on from that kind of thing now so and getting it just right is a is a daily kind of issue and then how do you think about the kind of the relationship between the function of a shoe and its aesthetic and how those things kind of interplay between each other? Because obviously it's a very functional object, right? You put it on your foot, sir. Yeah. Leave your home and go for a little wander. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's incredibly functional because, you know, mo- you, nobody walks around barefoot. You can't, you can't do without a pair of shoes. Um, it's got to be comfortable. If you ever go out in the morning in a pair of shoes that are uncomfortable, they ru- it ruins your day. You know, it's a really important part of, of the functionality of you as a human being every day. So that's really important. But by the same token, it's a, a fashion item. And you can't ever forget that. It is a fashion item and people won't buy it unless it looks good. So there's got to be that combination. I personally think that where we fit in is where you can see some of the beauty of the product is the functionality. Mm-hmm. Other products and other shoes all over the world, you know, aren't necessarily that high fashion stuff, you know, completely mad stuff on the catwalk or whatever. But our shoes are very simple and you can see why they work and how they work kind of thing. And there's a beauty in that and it's bringing that out that's really important, I think. So it's a very difficult combination to get it, but but you've got to get it right because if they don't look good, people just don't buy them. And if they don't work, if they're uncomfortable or whatever, you know, people won't wear them. Well, buy them once, but not twice. I'm getting very excited about um, the shoe company, the William Lennon Sons, the one? Yes, in Derbyshire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do, yeah. They do a lot of stuff for kind of shepherds. Yeah, yeah. And have really nice. Unbelievably yeah. functional. I got really excited about that when they have the little, the, the metal bits on the soles, don't we? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so, for, like Blakey's or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But for our first run, we had a little steel quarter heel. Oh, yeah. I just thought it looked so incredible. Yeah. But then some of the feedback we got is that when people were wandering around the office, people could hear them coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honking along. Which is why brothel creepers were called brothel creepers because they had soft soles so you can be heard walking around. <laughs> could you explain what a brothel creeper is? A brothel creeper is basically like a teddy boy um, uh, shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know, but uh, yeah. So I've heard or so I've read. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite stage in the shoemaking process? Um, I think no, it's really difficult. There are, there's, two, there's two particular things that I love. One is the lasting room. So you have this wooden last, which people always call a mold, but it's the opposite of a mold because instead of pouring something into it, you pull something over it. Um, and when the leather, you get this beautiful piece of flat leather that doesn't want to be anything but 
flat leather and you have to pull it over this and you pull it really hard and really tight over the last. And the moment it gets pulled over under real intense pressure and um, lots of moisture as well, steam and heat and what have you. And suddenly this piece of leather becomes a shoe and, and takes this beautiful form of the last. And in quality shoemaking, the leather on the last or on the wood as they call it, because they used to be wooden last, that's where all the quality is because you pull it over the last and it takes this beautiful form. If you do it quickly, or if you've got cheap leather that doesn't form properly, then the shoe becomes a bit boxy and doesn't have that beautiful shape to it. And also, if you take the leather off the last too quickly, so in China, for example, they have a thing like a, a 30 second shoe, or if you can't make a shoe in under 30 seconds, it's not commercial. We make shoes and we leave them on the last for two days. So in that two days, the leather adopts this beautiful shape of the last and sits down on the wood, as they call it. So that's that's my favourite bit, I think. I love putting the sole on as well because mm. that's the making of the shoe. But um, I think the lasting is where you suddenly see it come to life. I used to get very excited about, yeah, the, the going really deep on the welting process and yeah. the difference between a Goodyear welt and a Norwegian storm welt and all of these different yeah. intricacies. There's yeah. also something beautiful about that finish being uh, repairable and the idea yeah. that this shoe could like yeah last many many years outlive you which is the um, the Goodyear welted thing so you know what factories like us are known for this thing this um, process called Goodyear welting which was invented in the 1800s but it's one of the big reasons why it became successful was that you could repair the shoe and you couldn't before so when you take the sole off the welt still keeps the upper in place basically there's very few places in the world that still do welting or ever did welting, right? Yeah, no, it, it became an English, although it was invented in America by a guy called Charles Goodyear, it was adopted by the English shoe trade in a big way and it become, it's become known as the English shoemaking thing. So some Italian factories do Goodyear welting, even in Japan, even in China, there's Goodyear welting, but the British are known for it and it became part of our industry. Do you judge a person by their shoes? Yes, of course. <laughs> of course, I'll just look at your shoes now. <laughs> yeah, silently judging me. Yeah, no, absolutely, of course. You know, because I, I guess part of it is well, obviously, I have a big opinion on what I think is right and what I think is wrong, but also, I because it's my business, I know how much the shoes cost somebody. <laughs> I know a lot of shoes are there, a lot of cheaper shoes are made in a way to make them look like they're more expensive, like high shine leathers and things like that. So they look all good. But I can look at a shoe and know that it's not very expensive, not very well made. And not that I should judge people that way, but I kind of think I much prefer somebody to get a really simple, inexpensive shoe that's still kind of workwear-y kind of thing, rather than the shoe that's trying to look something that it's not. But yeah, also, but more than the shoe itself, how people look after the shoes. Mm. Because that, that's, you know, something in shoemaking. It's always a tragedy when you see a beautiful pair of shoes that we finished in the factory and you see them absolutely battered and ruined. Do you, th do you think you can tell a lot about somebody by the state of their uh, their shoes? I think so, yeah. Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, no, no, not one way or the other. Because sometimes I think a battered up pair of shoes with a, you know, a guy who's into like workwear and all that, you know, and a, some really old jeans and all that looks fantastic, looks amazing. 
But I think if you go into the boardroom and see somebody in a suit, a beautiful suit, and he hasn't polished his shoes and it doesn't quite look right, you know, I think, you know, that's a shame. But I'm joking, really. I mean, I, I don't really judge people by their shoes, but I do sit on the tube and look at everybody's shoes. Yeah. Think, Why I mean, did you buy those? <laughs> <laughs> You're not talking to me literally, are you? No, no, I'm not talking to you. No, no. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I have the exact same thing about glasses. Yeah. I spend all my time on the tube like looking at people on the sly at their frames. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing about that particularly is they, they'll turn around and look at you and think you're just staring them out. It's like, no, 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 I'm not looking at you. I'm just looking at your glasses. Yeah. Well, it's even weirder if you're looking at people's feet. <laughs> so they think, what's he doing? So what do you ju- when you're looking at somebody's glasses, what do you mark them down for then? Fit. Fit. Fit is okay. the mat, like... It's incredible how many people wear badly fitting glasses. Is that their fault, though, or the place no, that they pull the glasses yeah, yeah. from? Well, and obviously now, because more and more people buy stuff online, and they're kind of self-selecting without necessarily somebody there to guide them. Yeah. And so, yeah, all the time you see bad fit. You see, like, eyebrows right in the middle of a lens. You yeah. see frames that clearly aren't fitting well on the bridge. Yeah. Ones where the, the, the let-back angle, the temple, is too short. So yeah. it sort of sits up, rises up. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah, I would say more people have badly fitting frames than well fitting frames. And do you, and do you judge them not only for the fit, but for the style that they chose? Thought that doesn't suit your face. Is it that kind of thing? Uh, I would say less so because I don't okay. think because a lot of the kind of rec- general recommendations about what frames should sit a face is kind of twaddle to be honest with you. Yeah, but I think more more it's amazing when you see see people that are wearing a perfect pair of spectacles. Yeah that fits them well, that kind of feels like it's part of their identity, that yeah. you can't kind of imagine, it's an extension of them, you can't sort of imagine yeah. them without it. Yeah, no, definitely. Do you collect shoes? No, I don't, because like most people kind of in the business, and I'm sure it's probably the same in your business, you, you see so many shoes and we make so many shoes and it's so easy to grab a new pair of shoes all the time that you don't tend to value them in the same way probably. I absolutely love shoes, but I don't, I kind of move them on and, you know, plus I go to a lot of meetings with people where I ought to be wearing the new collection. Um, and if I just got new shoes every season, uh, you know, the, my wife would go nuts because the, there's already like way too many shoes hanging around. There's a few kind of favorites that I'll never get rid of. The first pair of shoes I ever, the first sample pair I ever made or had made in Northampton for me. You know, I've still got those. My first pair of Cordovan shoes, which was a big thing. So it was a few. Did you wear them or just sort of admire them every so often? Yeah, no, I do, I do wear them. I do, I do think this kind of product is the kind of product that gets better the more you wear it, um, which I love that kind of thing. So the same with Selvage denim or whatever. And I love the idea that the more you wear that you just keep wearing, 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 they get better. So... I don't need to put them away and hide them away. I've got a couple of pairs that I've got one pair that was the last ever pair made in our old factory, mm. the original factory before we moved. And I've never worn those. And they've got written on, on the inside that they were the last pair. So I don't wear those. But I think there's something nice and sort of parallels with spectacles as well. And so far as once you reach adulthood, your foot size doesn't change, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, we change shape and weight and whatnot, but yeah. our shoes on our heads stay pretty much the same. So yeah, you'd be able to wear a pair of spectacles or a pair of shoes your entire life. Yeah, something quite beautiful about that. Yeah, definitely. And I've I've been a you know a spectacle wearer. Do you call it a spectacle wearer? Yeah, absolutely. Spectacle wearer um, most of my adult life, um, and it is. It's really similar. It's really important. 
yeah, you you can you kind of know when you go into the shop that I think those would be fine. I you know I could wear those, and I think I know what I look like in them. Whereas in a jacket or a shirt, whatever, it might you might think, oh, that's quite nice, but when you try it on, it doesn't fit properly. It doesn't. It looks completely wrong on you. But it, you're right with shoes and glasses. It's um, you kind of know. And what's the what's the correct terminology? Is this shoemaker, cobbler, cordwainer? I use shoemaker. I'm not actually. I, I feel a bit of a fraud as well because I can't actually make a pair of shoes myself. So I like to think of myself as a shoemaker, but I'm not really. Um, yeah, I have people who make them. I remember trying all the different st- steps in this factory. Yeah, and I really screwed up the. Is it called the clicking room? Is it called where we're yeah. cutting the the uppers? Yeah, clicking is, clicking is where you cut the cut the leather. Yeah. Um, and it used to be, it was all called, always called clicking because the, the clicking sound of the knife on, yeah. on the table as you were clicking through the thing, through the leather. But then you probably had big press knives, did yeah, you, that, exactly. that come down? Yeah. yeah. We still hand cut. We, don't, we use press knives a little bit, but we hand cut most of what we do in the factory. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a, there's a lot of dangerous processes in the yeah, factory. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was sort of quite taken aback. Yeah. Also, when you go in the factories and you, that smell, which I originally thought was kind of leather. Yeah, it's actually, I assume it's like glue or something. It's all kinds <laughs> of stuff. It's a mix of everything. But yeah, people do, oh, I love the smell of that leather. And, you, and they're standing next to a, a thing of adhesive or whatever, <laughs> yeah. where, you know, we attach the sole on or something. So, Tim, you've brought in three objects yes. that uh, are important to you and hopefully mm. encapture this idea of the emotional utilitarian. Could you take us through them? Yes, I can. They're slightly odd. That's how we like it. Because I picked three things a while ago and then suddenly realized that they weren't that fun. They were things that I loved, but they weren't that functional. So I thought, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in three things that are incredibly functional and I love them for their function in particular. I'll leave the shoes to last because that's that was obvious. I had to do that. I hope you... Don't mind me bringing those in. Not. The first one is the Financial Times on Saturday. It has to be Saturday. So I know that, you know, some people be thinking, oh, that sounds a bit posh and what have you. But it's not. It's the most incredible, I think it's £4.80. And I only get it on a Saturday. During the week, it's way too complicated for me to understand it properly. But on a Saturday, there are two magazines, How to Spend It and the FT magazine. It's full of arts, creative, culture, interviews. There's the main news section. There's a section on um, the home, which is amazing. Stories about famous architects and buildings and all kinds of stuff. And it's £4.80 and it's the most amazing kind of functional product I can be reading that on and off for four or five days for £4.80. It's better than a book. It's better than any magazine you buy at the airport on the way to a holiday. You, know, you buy a men's magazine and it's full of absolute nonsense. It's, it's just absolutely packed with um, intelligent people writing, famous people writing, non-famous journalists. It's just, there's art, there are photographers, amazing photographers. So it's just an incredible product. And it's one of those products that there's probably a bit of a theme here that it's a product that you don't kind of think is, you don't, you forget it's an amazing product until you really think about it and think, if that was taken away from me, 
or if I'd never heard of that product before, what would I, how much would I be prepared to spend on it? And it would probably be 25 pounds or something. But it's, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I happen to think it looks very beautiful because it's pink. It's been pink for 120 years, I think. They, they made it pink originally for several reasons. One, because it's partly recycled, but mainly to stand out. So it was an aesthetic thing for a very, very serious newspaper, supposedly, um, to, to want to stand out and do marketing and look beautiful in their, in their words. They chose this salmon pink color. So, so I love that. That's amazing. It's quite a misleading title, really, isn't it? The Financial Times, given. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think during the week, it's, it is very financial. You know, it's kind of half and half. It's half main news and half deep dives into company. The company section, by the way, you read about companies big and small. And if you have your own business and do it every day, it's fascinating to read about what other people have got going on, the issues that they have in their businesses and everything. So that side of finance, I like. I'm not that interested in the city, but I am interested in companies and how they're run and what they're doing. So yeah, it, it's, it's a fantastic product. And do you, uh, do you keep old issues? No, I'm not that. No, you have to move on. No, you have to move on definitely because there's another one coming, you know, <laughs> the following Saturday. Yeah, no, I don't keep them. Tell us about your second object. So the second one, again, even more so, is a product that you, you were, while I was thinking about it, it's this product that I was, you never think about at all. You never think how clever certain things are and yet you use them every single day and you never even notice that you're using them half the time. So I recently had a fire in my house, had to move to um, a new apartment and to try and lighten the load, make it a bit nicer for ourselves, we found a flat in the Barbican. And the Barbican is a myriad of different buildings, doors, lifts. You can go, if you're a resident there, you can go anywhere in the building, all the residential bits, the concert hall, the, you know, wherever. But to make all of that work, because there's the general public in, in a, at least a third of it, it's open to the general public. And then there's the, the private bits, the residential bits, there's um, restaurants and things, there are lifts that some people can use and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I've just got this one key and they just give you this one key and it's a bog standard you know, normal key that anybody uses every day, metal key, and you put it in and it can open any door in the Barbican basically, which, and I was just thinking about it, that there must be two or three keys to do this, but it's also my front door key. And so this key opens every door apart from other people's front doors, but opens my front door. And it's just this little bit of jagged metal. <laughs> And you think, wow. And when you were talking, when you were asking about things that are inherently practical, things that you can't do without, I thought, I'll try and think of something that I haven't really thought about before. And that just sprung to mind. And I think it's an amazing piece of technology, but old technology. It's not a modern key fob or a, what have you. And I can call the lift with that. So I can put it in, call the lift. I can go anywhere with it. So I thought that was an amazing thing. Bit weird, I know. Yeah, no, I love it. And I've never really kind of sort of thought about a key being kind of beautiful object. No. I didn't, well, it's it, practical is the thing. I yeah. don't know about beauty. The, the beauty is in the function and, and, and yeah. how it works. And you look at this little kind of row of little jagged bits of metal 
And somehow that does all of those things. And obviously all of the technical part of it is in the lock and how the lock is constructed, which is like incredibly complicated. But I just think it's amazing. And I, I, I need to go and have a look and see who invented the first key. Or, <laughs> but yeah. But I suppose the downside of having a key that opens everything is if you lose it, that makes things... Then you can open yeah. nothing. Yeah. yeah. But that's, <laughs> that's life, isn't it? You know, all they can do is design the key. But the, the thing I love about um, practical objects like that is that somebody once sat down and thought about that and spent half their life designing that to give it to people or to sell it to people to make their lives easier. That makes my life incredibly easy in the bargain. If I had 10 keys, which you would imagine, it would be a nightmare. Or if there were certain doors I couldn't open because I didn't have the right key, it would be a nightmare. But somebody somewhere has sat down and worked out a way that makes my life easier. And I think that's a really lovely thing about practical objects. And then I suppose what it gives you, which is, you know, freedom, safety. Freedom. Yeah, there you go. Freedom and safety, two things that are very difficult to, to bring together. Yeah, sorry, it's a bit strange. No, that's great. It's great to better. <laughs> and tell us about your third object. So the third, third object, pretty predictably, is um, a shoe. It's from our range of shoes called the Triple Welt. And the reason I love it is because English shoe making, as we've said, is, is mostly known by this process called Goodyear welting. And that's what it's famous for. And what a lot of the English shoe trade used to do in the kind of 80s and 90s and 2000s was try and, because the, 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 the fashion became um, Italian shoes, which were really finessed with thin soles and very elegant and what have you, lightweight, really comfortable. And they would try and replicate that in a Goodyear welter factory. And it's very difficult because there are several layers of leather and the sole by design has to be quite thick because there's a sole and there's a welt and often there's an insole as well. Um, so they would try and make it look all finessed and it never kind of worked for me. And what I want to do is go the other way and really show off the Goodyear welting process. You know, so it was all out there on display, not this tiny little thin mm. sole with a black sole edge that you can hardly see and it disappears, but do the exact opposite. And this guy in the factory, the other reason I love this was that this guy in the factory who's the sole stitcher, came to me one day and I was looking at various different things and designs and what have you. And he came to me with this, this kind of detail, which we call the triple welt, around the welt, where it's, it's difficult. It's like a three-stepped welt. Instead of like a, just a simple welt around the edge, it's three-stepped and it's got these little notches all around. It's got two rows of stitching in it and it generally a very wide and chunky shoe. And he brought it to me and he said, I've done this kind of thing on a shoe. I just wondered if you'd be interested. And I said, that's absolutely beautiful. I love that. Straight away sat down and worked out, worked on a little mini collection of shoes. Uh, basically took a lot of our best-selling upper designs, like a full brogue and a full brogue boot and what have you. And then we put this sole on it, gave it a name, the Triple Welt and went out with it. And from day one, it was really successful. And people loved it, I think, because it was so honest and open about what we do. And it shows off the work of the, of the craftsman. You can't replicate that detail around the shoe. 
Whereas if we do a black loafer with a very slim black sole on it, it's quite easy to to do something that's just a cemented version of that in China, and it kind of can look the same from a you know, unless you look up close. With this, you could never replicate that. So I love it because of what it is, what it stands for. It's very very British shoemaking, but also because it came from the factory and it came from a craftsman. Uh, it didn't come from the design table. It came from the factory and from a machine and a, and a man with a machine. So. Yeah, so that's the that's the triple welt shoe. Well, again, there's a sort of parallels I think with spectacles as well because way back when we were first designing the very first collections, the designers would always say they wanted to hide what the pins or the the rivets. Oh yeah, because they felt that felt old fashioned. Oh really? Whereas I was always of the belief that all of the glasses that I liked all had these structural pins, these little double yeah. pins. Um, but yeah, the trend was to remove them and do heat soak hinges. But the problem with that is you can't repair them. It's very similar to ah, a Goodyear welt. Yeah. So I actually thought, well, let's go the other way and actually turn the rivet into a design feature. Yeah. And come up with a little butterfly rivet that mm. you have in all the frames. Yeah. Which is which again is identifiable. So I can I can be I, I had a drink with somebody the other night and immediately I said, they're Qubit's glasses, aren't they? And they said, yeah, and they knew why I knew, you know, because they know because of the rivets that I would know that. And it's a really nice thing. And it shows off the craftsmanship. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, love it. Have you ever thought about a quadruple weld? <laughs> the problem with this is it's already so wide that there are certain things like driving a car and you yeah. get it caught, caught at each other and, there's a, you know, hopefully nobody's killed themselves yet. But, yeah. Quadruple might be a bit much. I don't know if you could actually walk in it. Yeah, just end up just wearing a welt. Yeah, just a welt. Get, <laughs> get rid of the rest of the shoe. Yeah, I'll give it a try. 